This is Joseph Gervaisi. I'm here with Elizabeth Arnold. Uh, today is August 23rd, 2013. We're recording this interview in very uncool Roxborough neighborhood of Philadelphia where I live. Uh, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Took a little, little effort. Um, what was your first word, frack, as a baby? My mom can't remember my first word because I was the second child. Oh, okay, <laughs> so, so I, none of that I think shit matters anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think they stopped writing it down after the first one. Oh, uh, well. Uh, but why don't you tell me, where were you born and when? I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, in the foothills of Appalachia in, on March 4th, 1984. All right. The only birthday that's a command. That's a command? March 4th. Oh, I get it. Oh, very good. <laughs> Thought of that. Um, a Chinese communist pointed that out to me, actually. Yeah, that, I guess that would be the person <laughs> to point that out. Uh, so did you wind up living in Birmingham for some time, or did you move off? I was, I was in Birmingham until I was five, and then my mom um, moved my brother and I to and herself to Philadelphia to pursue a um, PhD. And this was not with your... It was No, and my dad, my dad stayed in, in Birmingham, so we would live in Philly during the school year and we would live in Birmingham during the summer and the holidays we'd go back down south and, and see family mm-hmm. and that was that was until I was 13 and then my parents uncoordinated uh, moved to Minnesota and Tennessee respectively so I would live in Minnesota during the school year and Tennessee during the summer and then when I graduated from high school I moved I moved back to Philly by myself. Right. So did something draw you to Philadelphia? I mean, did it leave an impression more so than Minneapolis or Tennessee or... Yeah, I've lived, um, you know, I've lived in Birmingham, Tennessee, Minnesota, Indiana, Philly, Venezuela, China. And I think of all the places that I've lived in the United States, especially I think Philly is by far the the greatest city <laughs> so what i mean of course i concur with the sentiment wholeheartedly but what do you think for you at least makes this the greatest city i mean a- absolutely community first and foremost but also the history my mom's a historian you know i grew up getting getting driven around philly or walking around philly getting lots of snippets of history so that that there's history everywhere but you feel it and you see it more in philly than most American cities. And then you also have some of the best public transit, which, you know, is is compared to other American cities because mm-hmm. we all know that m- most other developed nations have better public transit yeah, in, yeah. Their, in their cities. But Philly, you can, you can take public transit and you can bike really everywhere. You yeah, can bike true, anywhere yeah. in the mm-hmm. city in like half an hour. Yeah, I have to say I'm is, impressed that you biked out here, which is a distance from... You know the part of West Philly that you live in. It's yeah, pretty, pretty nasty hill. Biking downhill will be even better. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no breaking on that. There'll be flames coming out of your heels on the way down. <laughs> yeah, but this this is this is an amazing city, and it's it's diverse, and there are really rich communities, really rich neighborhoods. Each each community, each neighborhood in Philly really feels like its own. You world. mean rich in a cultural sense? Yeah, like rich affluence. In no, no. <laughs> I don't think we've ever been accused of that. Yeah, no, there are a few neighborhoods. I mean, you can go Rittenhouse or you know certain parts of Chestnut Hill, Mount Airy, Chestnut Hill. Yeah, but um, the city, and I, I have to say, it's really the activist tradition in this in this city that keeps me connected more than anything. I feel like 
no matter what issue you care about or or want to get involved in there's there's going to be people that are willing to just start start doing something with you around mm-hmm. it even if there's not a damn thing going on already right, right. and there's there's such a rich history of of older activists who you know can tell you I'm, I'm big into into oral oral tradition and oral histories and I mean I love reading but I, I much rather hear it from somebody who was who there lived yeah. who lived it mm-hmm. or yeah. would know you know know somebody was in proximity to to folks that were living it um, and I there's just endless wealth of that history and experience in Philadelphia and and I'm sure you know there I mean there is everywhere but it it's it's so obvious here and it doesn't you don't have to scratch too deep yeah people have, to get can to have very storied faces like I felt that even more acutely from doing this project and talking to people about something very specific which tends to be about punk or underground music but everybody that I see now like on the bus I'm like that person clearly has an amazing story I don't know what it is but something about the wrinkles in their face you know tells me that they if I sat there with a tape recorder they would tell me some tales yeah and, and I, maintaining maintaining that curiosity it's is so important I think we all should have that about each other always because maybe maybe you talk to somebody and you're like oh I was wrong they're boring and <laughs> this is this yeah. conversation is going nowhere but it's much better to have that kind of curiosity and start a conversation and try to pull things out of people and you know worst comes to worst you're disappointed but more often than not I think you're you're floored by by what's revealed what people are willing to reveal of, of themselves and of the world as they ex- as they experience it or they see it. I agree. Yeah, because I think most people aren't usually asked in their daily life. I mean, if, if they're part of a community like that which you live in, there's probably a lot of social interaction and a lot of ideas being communicated. But I think people who are on the periphery of that or just completely outside of that, people don't really ask them. You know, they're going to say, like, would you like cheese on this thing that you purchased? Or, you know, this like, uh, things about, you know, consumer affairs or moving through life. But no one's going to say, like, can you tell me the story of... Yeah. This or that or this thing. And even even within our own communities. I mean, this is, this project is really exciting because, you know, I know some of the other people you've interviewed and still listening to the interviews, you get something that maybe didn't come up in conversation and I, I definitely find that to be true of my mother who has a very rich and interesting past and most of it I feel like I've learned about through hearing overhearing conversations that she's having with other people as mm, opposed yeah, yeah. to things that we've actually shared directly with each other and and I think that's that's true for a lot of people yeah I felt like that as a kid like when I hear my parents talk to people I would get the feeling like oh this is what they really are this is what their life experiences actually are you know that I'm not being privy to but still I'm able to hear yeah um, so we'll go back a little I guess I should probably point out that we want to focus this interview is going to be a little different from some of the other ones because we're going to focus on your your life kind of moving through activism and stuff uh, and less on music and, and subculture, although I'm sure that that'll come up to some degree. So we'll move back just a little bit to young you, like you as a kid. Like what was, what was say, like pre, pre-activist Elizabeth, what, what were her interests and what, you know, what did she do? I tried to har- harvest honeysuckle juice one drop at a time. <laughs> Sounds like a very laborious process. Yeah. I spent hours down by the honeysuckle bush. Drop, 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 trying to... Were you, you were gathering it in some sort of container? Yeah. So a did small... you ever get like an actual like, I... mouseful? I got a coat, just a... a thin coat on the bottom of the small container and I immediately rushed home and got out the confectioner sugar and would put 
the sugar on my finger and then dip it in the honeysuckle juice and then eat it. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, was it gone. Worth, was it worth the effort? It was worth every bit of effort. That's great. The minute it was gone, I'd go back and do it again. And that was your entire childhood. <laughs> no, and that sums it all up. Okay. No, I, I played, um, you know, I grew up in a, in, a, in a row home, small row home with a four foot by four foot front yard and a slightly bigger, maybe a six foot by six foot backyard. Is this here or was in this Philly? Yeah. yeah. In, what, what part of Philly was it? In Mount Airy, okay. on uh, kind of the border, border of Germantown and Mount Airy. And, uh, and so I spent, we had two bushes in our front yard, and I spent a lot of time in the bush. <laughs> crouched between or behind one of those bushes. Uh, I played in the neighborhood. I played in, in Alabama. You know, we'd ride bikes. We'd play outside. We'd jump, you know, we'd jump on other people's trampolines. That's the great thing about the South. You really can just jump anybody's fence or go into anybody's backyard and start playing on their stuff and... Most of the time, nobody, nobody will say anything. Or they'll come out yeah, and play with you, or you know. Yeah, I don't ever remember getting yelled at except about the picking strawberries from the strawberry patch. <laughs> but, that is forbidden. But yeah, I played, and at my house in Birmingham, actually, when it rained, the turquoise would wash up out of the ground. So we'd collect turquoise oh, at a yeah. We found some arrowheads in our basement, and um, you know stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I, I liked. I always like playing outside a lot, but. You know, I'd, I'd spend some time inside. We would rent movies when my mom was at work and um, and would watch them until she was walking up the front steps and then we'd pop them out of the VCR and shove them under the couch. Were you not allowed to watch movies or not allowed to watch those movies? Not both. Okay. <laughs> not allowed to watch so much TV or, you know, video and not allowed to watch rated R uh, what at kind of, age what kind eight. Of, yeah, <laughs> what sort of nasty business were I'm, you watching? I'm pretty sure we watched almost... My brother was uh, a movie a film buff and movie fanatic and I'm pretty sure and we lived a half a block away from video library uh, the one on Germantown yeah, Avenue yeah, yeah. and so we would rent up to two at a time and I mean ev- pretty much everything that was made between 1989 and when we stopped doing it around 96 or 97 and and then a lot of old classics as well so mm-hmm. I watched so many films that I I think they just went in one eyeball and and out out the other. <laughs> I guess you probably extracted the crucial information from them, you know, like the honeysuckle, like you got the little right. drop little, that mattered from drop the whole thing. There, yeah. But but I've always I've always been a fan of real life. I've always really enjoyed talking to people and being being engaged with with live. So even as a kid, then, you were like, yeah. Oh yeah, my mom said that I uh, started reaching out to people around me before I could speak just motioning to them and trying to engage them at the you know get the grocery store on the street or and I I have definitely I I definitely have always been quite social I got detention a number of times for quote being too much of a social butterfly (laughs) in class and in uh, elementary school and junior high I meant you're a pretty bright kid so you right I mean probably tested quite well I yeah you know they had they had this thing, the the gifted and talented program, which I don't, I don't know. I mean, Philly public schools should all, I mean, all of our all of our students should be considered gifted and talented, and we should be teaching them, educating them accordingly. What if they're big dummies, though? 
Yeah, I don't I mean, clearly some people are going to have intellectual <laughs> skills superior to others. Uh, no, I think people just have different interests. I think pretty much everyone does well when they find something no, that I they're... I went to school with a lot of real dumbasses, uh... and they were not, uh, they were neither gifted nor talented, that I could ascertain. So, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it wasn't... I'm, right. an, I'm an eternal optimist. I'm, I, okay. I just, I think it's about catering to, to each individual's interests. And So you're trying to say that you were in the gifted and talented program. Yes. Uh, yeah, maybe. because I imagine that like that probably allows you to get away with certain things. Like you can be a social butterfly to a degree of like, you know, you're considered to be exceptionally bright. Mm, no, I ended up going to a magnet school um, my last couple years in Philly, and so you know they pump everybody full of this like you're the you're the smartest kids in the Philly public school system. You all are all bright and gifted, but I I spent. Um, a decent amount of time in detention though I didn't get horrible grades or anything I mean I did I, you know I did well in, well enough in school <laughs> uh-huh. okay fair enough uh, so then what were the, the seeds then of your interest in political causes because clearly that's something that sort of defines you now I mean at least part of you so I mean were there did you witness certain social injustices or did, what were the sources of this yeah, I think, I mean, I think growing up in Philly, um, you cannot be unaware of race. I would say anywhere in America, you, I can't imagine that you could be unaware of race. But definitely in Philly, I mean, race, race politics is everything. And class, I mean, going, you know, being a product of the Philadelphia school system. I can't say there aren't still days where I'm not a little bit bitter about another individual of my same age and same same otherwise seemingly same kind of background who went to a private school or you know went to a better public school in another city Mm -hmm. and I can tell you know there's they they got a better education than I did and there's not you know it it I'd be lying to say that I wasn't a little bit bitter about that sometimes um but and and I think part of what makes me so angry about it is that it's still the case there, um, I've substitute taught in the Philly public school system. I've worked for Outward Bound Philly and, you know, facilitated groups of students and teachers from the Philly public school system. And, you know, there's great educators in our schools and there's really, really bright, eager, um, curious kids. And, and, and there's, and our system is just broken. It's really, it's, it's so unfair. It's, it's, you know, I went to I went to high school in Minnesota, and the public schools there. My public school offered Arab, Arabic, um, Chinese, Swahili, Italian, French, Spanish, Latin. So it wasn't a purely. Was there? Were you like the only non-white person there, and, and you're white? I mean, I imagine Minnesota being very, very white. No, actually, my high school in in because I because w- I went to high school in the Twin Cities was like a third a third black, a third Asian, and a third white. Okay. You know, and a little right. bit. A, you know, a few Hispanic, a few other, um, but it, it, it's just, they, they have a different funding structure and they, they pool taxes in a different way and they have open enrollment. So you can go to any school in the, in the twin cities and in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. You can't do that in Philly. You yeah. don't have the same kind of open yeah, enrollment yeah. and the tax structure is, you know, and the funding mechanisms for the schools is just antiquated and dumb. And it, and it's, it leads to the kind of inequality and subpar public education that we have in Philadelphia. So 
Um, and this is something you were aware of from from a young age. Then. No, I mean, my mom was my mom uh, was active in our school, and and tried to try to do things to you know get more parental involvement and you know do things to kind of help the school out and help teachers out. Um, so I was aware that education was really important. But I don't think, you know, I used to, I would hear stories about the civil rights movement and, you know, my parents were activists. Um, but when I was real young, I, I thought, wow, that's so great that they were involved in that so that I don't have to deal with that stuff. <laughs> right. Because when you're young, you, you know, you're, you know, when you're young and, and, and white and not dirt poor, you're somewhat insulated from, you know, abuses in or in your early years like one to five I don't I don't really felt like I had any traumatic events or anything but then you get you know you get older and you start you know you start getting into conflicts with folks or about over like race or gender or class issues and and then, and then I think it's impossible to be unaware of it where you met often met with the assumption that you came from some sort of affluence Oh yeah, and I think that still happens if you're white in America. I mean, it's just like, oh, well, you must be upper class or middle upper class, or and that's you know, there's plenty of white folks that grow up poor. Though I do, th- I do consider my family privileged in the sense that a lot of them are well educated, and um, and historically, I think it's important not to just look at your parents, your your present state, or your parents, but look at the advantages that your um, family has had in generations past and and I think you know as white folks in the United States we even even poor whites have had a lot more advantage than anybody else in this country so that well you know, it may depend if you come from you know how recent were there immigrants did the immigrants come into the country and what sort of experience did they have you know they yeah. coming in early 20th century where they're discriminated against and you know live in ghettos and, and through poverty or did they come in on the Mayflower and you know a few generations down they owned slaves and ran plantations or something right and it's not to say that everybody had the same experience but you know as as the as the na- nation of origin uh, signifier kind of diminished and and it became one white nation you know, with with less distinction between Irish and Italian and Polish and all the all the all the different nationalities. Um, I think, you know, there's there's just no there's no doubt that that if you were identified as white, you had much much more advantage in this country. And and that's part of why I mean that's part of why I feel a a, a strong need to be a lifelong activist because. One, not to a certain extent, you know, that that's a position of privilege. And also, my, you know, if you really look at my family history, I mean, my my mom's side, they were they were not wealthy. They lived on a, a farm in Appalachia in Kentucky, but they struck oil on their farm and were able to send send their kids to school and then move into the city. And you know, I'm not saying I wouldn't have made the same decision at that time to. I don't even know if they really realized what oil was. <laughs> right, yeah. But, I think it was black gold or right. Texas tea. Yeah. But, um, and on my dad's side, uh, my great-grandfather um, was, in, was involved in oil exploration in Texas, you know, independent, not with any of those big companies. But um, 
I, I kind of feel like I have a lot of a lot of rectifying <laughs> of of environmental rape to uh, correct for the rest I don't think of anyone my personally generation. Blames you, you know, for, but for, for, uh, yeah. it's real. I mean, we we are who shape shape our world. So the and sins so, of the father are weighing heavily upon you, right? Like albatross around your neck, right? You know, yeah. you gotta you gotta do your part. So now now I do a lot of anti fracking organizing, and um, I, I mean I've been involved in a in a lot of different social justice issues and will continue to be for the rest of my life. And as, as far as I'm concerned, they're all related. Um, but I think the environment is one that I feel most strongly about because there's just not enough. Now there's like a growing, uh, movement around climate change and, and like being concerned about the impacts of climate change. But, um, I still feel like there's not really a lot there's not the level of environmental consciousness that there should be considering that our well-being is tied to that of the planet. Mm-hmm, right. For even selfish purposes, we should be, we should be real concerned <laughs> about uh, what yeah, happens yeah. Mm-hmm. to the world around us. But. So was environment one of the first things that you were drawn to when you became more politically active? And then when, when were you really kind of in earnest sort of picking up the issues? Yeah, actually, one of my... Um, oh, God. I, I guess the first... The first walkout I did from school was when I was in seventh grade, and that was, I think, I believe that was organized by Philly Student Union to protest the formation of charter schools mm-hmm. and that whole thing. And um, what was the feeling regarding, I mean, certain people who hear this might not really know about the charter school, how that works. Like, what was the feeling regarding why, why there was an issue, what they are? Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie. Obviously, a lot of my politics were um, influenced by my mother, who I lived with, but I was also an independent thinker and I didn't just take what other people said without, without thinking it through myself. Um, but basically, you know, the concept just made no sense to me. Wait, you're, you're going to say that there's something wrong with the public schools. So you're going to give money to private for-profit groups to try to do a better job educating students by giving them money and flexibility that you're not giving to the existing public schools like if if there's really a problem then why don't you restructure the public school system Mm -hmm. why would you outsource it to a for-profit organization and you know inevitably we've seen exactly what people were protesting about and thought would happen before the charter schools open. We've seen embezzlement. We've seen people going to jail for, for taking money from the schools that are supposed to be going to kids' educations. We've seen a track record of schools doing about the same as the traditional public schools. Some are great, some are horrible and should be closed, and then there's a lot of really mediocre schools. So it's it's not shockingly it's not terribly different than and exactly what existed before and philly seems to be in its absolute worst state of school systems now than ever because they could barely even open them come uh, you know a few more weeks or another week or something yeah and that is i have to say we have a lot of amazing activists who have been organizing and fighting really really hard around that issue and i think that they're they're amazing folks and there have been a lot of people coming out of the woodwork to donate money or find money to open the schools on time and without horrible draconian cuts. But the reality is, is there's something fundamentally flawed with our system if if this is what we're having to, to do at the last minute, scramble 
to to come up with just the meager basics. I mean, this this should be a robust. I mean, I don't I don't think there's anything more important than education in society. So this is not something that should come last and be a last minute kind of like, oh, what are we gonna do with our kids' lives? Yeah, yeah. These kids <laughs> this who will be running first. everything in you know a matter of years. Right. Giving them the substandard education just means that you kind of are churning out people with substandard intelligence to run all of future activities in this world, yeah, in I this think, country. I think uh, <clears throat> on the on the anniversary, soon to be anniversary of um, the I Have a Dream speech, I'm pretty sure Martin Luther King has the quote, I'm terrible at quotes, but to the effect of, you know, a nation of, of soft-minded men is just about the most dangerous, you know, thing that you can you can have, and it's, it's you know, leads, leads to... To the downfall of society, Ari. I'm obviously no Martin Luther King, and that's not that's, he he said it much more eloquently. But yeah, but I you know, know that, I get the that idea investing in minds is the most important, and that's that's where the strength yeah, of the yeah. nation comes from. And I feel like if you ask most people on the street what they, if you just did a random survey out here on Henry or wherever, yeah. um, people would say that that absolutely education is essential, and that you know ignorance is is expensive but if you ask them the second question would you be willing to pay a bit more taxes to fund those schools the answer would be hell say, no yeah absolutely <laughs> so. not um, so that's always a problem like yeah it would be great but right. don't want to pay any money for it but anyway. the reality is is that your your average philadelphian is is really in the lower tax range i mean if you're if you're talking about corporate taxes or, or taxing the wealthy and it's just that we have an incredibly a, really an incredibly punitive tax system that that makes the poor pay a disproportionately large percentage of their income while the rich yeah they pay more like in the overall dollar figure but it's it's a drop in the bucket of what they need to actually meet their needs and 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 still have a good time on they don't need all that extra that's a whole lot of extra <laughs> uh yeah that's true uh, so tell me about the, your walkout in seventh grade. Oh, in seventh grade. So we walked out, marched from, I was going to school downtown, so we marched from there down to City Hall, and, you know, we had a protest. And the campaign continued, obviously, and Philly Student Union still exists today and is still doing great work. Um, but then the next year after that, I moved to Minnesota, and that, um, towards the end of that year, was the WTO protests in mm -hmm. Seattle, and I had friends that were going out from Minnesota to WTO protests. But this is in seventh grade. I mean, you had I was in eighth grade at this okay. point. Yeah, but yeah. still, so you're 13, and you. Need yeah, to so I wasn't going to the protests, but also because I had these, you know, I had family obligations. Like I had to be in a different state for yeah, I mean, a quarter a of the year. <laughs> what are you gonna, yeah, yeah, so. Um, but this is it's interesting that you would know, you know, people who. But I knew about it, and yeah. yeah, and I really wanted to go, <laughs> yeah. but. Um, I don't, I, but I mean, even at the time, I didn't realize how huge that was going to be. And then um, in, when I was in ninth grade, they wanted to expand, I was living in St. Paul, Minnesota, and they wanted to expand the highway, Highway 55, um, that runs from the airport to like downtown Minneapolis, and they wanted to put in a light rail line, but also expand the highway. Mm -hmm. And we weren't against the light rail line, but we were against their plan to expand the highway in that would claim eminent domain and knock down, 
you know, the houses of elderly couples who'd lived there their whole life, yeah. go through the park, go over Native American sacred land, go mm-hmm. by a sacred spring, knock down the four oaks. Um, and that was a, a huge, long campaign where um, folks ended up occupying the houses that were going to be bulldozed, set up. There was a there was a community there that was functioning. I mean, it's like this small, like a tent autonomous city, community. Mm-hmm. Well, in the houses, they built a sweat lodge. There were, yeah, there were temporary structures. It was just a really vibrant, special place that... Um, there is a documentary about it, but it's it's really hard to capture the feeling of being in a place where people have, you know, shared very strong, a very strong sense of commitment to sh- a shared vision and, and, and common values. Mm-hmm. It's just really, it's really lacking in our society. Yeah. I mean, we have, we live in a big city with a whole bunch of people of diverse interests and, and this really... This was a really amazing, special um, community of activists. There were Earth First folks, American Indian Movement folks, um, you know, young people. I was like 15. I didn't. I didn't sleep overnight in the encampment because they were worried if they got raided by the police that they would then also be in trouble yeah, for, for harboring minor minors, yeah. and, and and stuff like that. So I wasn't ultimately there when they raided at like three in the morning. Um, so did it get bulldozed. shut down? They did. We lost. I mean, we totally lost in the sense that they expanded the highway. They built the light rail, which is great. And they're, they continue to expand light rail in Minneapolis and St. Paul, which is great. Um, and I wish they would do that in Philly. But there was no need to expand the highway the way that mm-hmm. they did. And um, But it really it really showed me that it's it's not just about whether you win or lose. It's the process of... Of, of doing these things because I think most people that were involved, especially the younger folks, I think most people who were involved in the occupation, the Highway 55 occupation, um, are are committed for life. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was such a it was such a magical time and such a moving experience that it it really made you see what was possible, like within activist communities, as far as like that that spirit and. You know, I, I think it reinvigorated older folks. I think it got younger kids who who weren't yet that active, like really, really mm-hmm. into it and wanting right. to go, wanting to do more. Um, and so that was that was a pretty pivotal experience for me. Um, and then I lived in Venezuela in high school. I was an exchange student. I was actually studying Chinese, and I wanted to move to China. Mm-hmm. And they sent me to Venezuela instead. So your Chinese must have come in very handy. Yeah, my Chinese came in. In actually, I did end up taking some Chinese calligraphy classes while I was there That's with an older Chinese man that refused to teach me Chinese, but was all about teaching me. He was an art dealer, and he was all about teaching me calligraphy, but not Chinese. Um, but I didn't. I spoke maybe four words of Spanish when I got down there. I had never. I had never studied Spanish. Um, so I took a two week craft course, went to Venezuela, but I've always been, I've always, since, since I was 12, I always volunteered somewhere, you know, doing something. And I had a job from the age of 13 or 14. And so when I went to Venezuela, I, you know, I wasn't going to work because I was in high school and the jobs, you know, pay that well. And I'm not going to take it from a Venezuelan, but, um, I did explore my opportunities to volunteer and I ended up volunteering with an AIDS prevention organization in Caracas called Fundación Maroso which is still around 
And um, I, you know, since I didn't really speak Spanish, I like help organize their library materials in English and mm-hmm. point out articles that might be useful for the educators. Yeah. And you know, they were good to have me around, really. Um, and that that was really powerful because I was reading about Brazilian activists throwing. HIV positive blood on the walls of, of government buildings to get them to dedicate more funding to um, so they had groups to, sort of like the equivalent to ACT UP right in, yeah yeah uh, in other countries and actually that year that year that I was in Venezuela ACT UP did these protests um, it was it was called for by activists in South Africa and so ACT UP New York um, and activists in Brazil were protesting Glasgow Smiths Kleins um they, they were suing the, the South African government over generic, the production of generic drugs. And, I mean, generic drugs have literally, literally, no exaggeration, saved millions of lives and and have also provided for a better quality of life. For, right. And Glaxo didn't want this to happen. And they didn't want that. They wanted, they wanted they their profits. Stand. And they keep, right. you know, renewing their patents. And they want to sue countries over, over trade infringement and... And patent patent infringements and 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 Brazil has been a phenomenal example of of really um, progressive proactive uh, HIV/AIDS policy that um, has really saved you know at least a million lives in Brazil if not more. Um, Did groups in in Venezuela find themselves coming up against the Catholic Church? I imagine they held a tremendous amount of power in that country. Um. You know, I wasn't because I didn't speak Spanish very well um, at the time. I didn't, I didn't get it. We didn't have any problems. Like we did, we did public displays of the, of the, you know, the AIDS quilt, and we did outreach and public education around condom use and, um, and stuff like that. But I don't, I don't know that much about what was going on with the internal politics, but. At that time, Chavez was already in power, and he was pretty—he right, um, right. was pretty progressive, <laughs> right. to, to say the least. Um, so that was also an interesting time to be there. It wasn't as polarized as it, as Venezuelan society is now. Um, uh-huh. It was still polarized, but um, it's grown increasingly polarized since you know when Chavez first came into power. But you know there were there were already people saying oh he wants to be the next Fidel Castro and there were other people saying you know no he's great and it, he'll just be in here one term and it's whatever and you know I I think some people foresaw what was coming and others didn't and some foresaw it and liked it and some foresaw it and didn't like it and mm-hmm. that's pretty much still the state of Venezuelan society it's very 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 divided so it yeah, depends right. on who you talk to mm-hmm. there's people that love Chavez and there's people that hate him and not going to get either one of them to budge on their opinion whatsoever. Right. <laughs> so. so what do you think that you primarily drew from your experience there? I mean, are there certain uh, lessons that you learned in being there that you've kind of taken going forward or experiences that were really crucial when you were there, over there? Yeah, I think I, I think I noticed sexism in a way that I hadn't really, I mean, partly also because I was developing as a, a you know, from a, from a girl to a woman, but um also, you know, when you look at media like television or, or newspapers or radio um, in a culture that's not your own, you are so, you analyze it so much more thoroughly mm-hmm. typically than, than you do 
media from your own culture because you're you're so aware of the differences. You're comparing constantly right. back and you're to probably, your, probably paying closer attention because you don't hear the language and understand it as well. So you're right. You're focused on the yet. visuals. Mm-hmm. You're. I mean, yeah. You have to. I really had to pay attention because I was learning Spanish and so I was spending a lot of time trying to read the newspaper and watching TV and listening to the radio and you know that's how I was learning Spanish and and talking to people. Um, but also it's, you know, I, I was, I was watching television down there and, you know, if you've seen Univision or any of the Spanish television in the U S I'm sure most people are just appalled and they think, Oh God, this is so gross and fake and horrible. But, and that's what I thought when I lived in Venezuela, I was like, wow, this is really gross and fake and horrible. And then I came back to the U S and I was like, Whoa, our media is just the same. It's actually worse. I was like, I think it's gotten worse in the year that I was gone. Mm-hmm. Was it like this before? I don't know. You know, and then yeah. you're, then you're, then you're trying to reassess. I mean, but it, I, I can't over exaggerate or overemphasize what a life changing experience it was to live in Venezuela for a year when I was 16. And I am still to this day, every young person that I see that I talk to, I mean, even adults as well, but especially younger folks, I try to get every single one of them to move to another country because I think it's, it's a, a really mind altering experience to be able to see the world from a different perspective. So when I came back, you know, in Venezuela, you get hit on in the street. I mean, probably, you know, every 12 seconds, it's wow. not, it's very, that might be slightly exaggerated, yeah, but it but depends on what street you're walking down, really. Is um, there a physical element to it as well? I mean, do people, you know, manhandle you or grab you or, you know, like, not usually. Um, one of my friends from Norway did get licked up the side of her face just randomly on the street. I guess that could probably happen. Somebody in just, I mean, she was a tall blonde with blue eyes and somebody just licked her like an ice cream cone and then ran away. Wow. Um, <laughs> but that's not <laughs> common. <laughs> so that didn't happen to you though that didn't happen to me um, but you know I'd be wearing my school uniform which tells what grade but basically tells what what level of school you're in and everything and I, you know I'd be hit on by people with wedding rings people and young people old people all kinds of people and when I talked to my Spanish teacher about it and how disturbing that was she was like oh that's the greatest thing about Venezuela it's like it doesn't matter how you look you go out during the day and you know everyone all, all these men will tell you how beautiful you are and how wonderful you are yeah, you think like an old grandma's getting that um actually in venezuela uh, look like an ice most, cream cone no you're not gonna get maybe not look like an ice cream cone but you're gonna get you're gonna get hollered at 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 all ages and at, at, at all looks so equal opportunity sexism um, right, somehow right. is supposed yeah. to be Which is, less than... It's so funny because now there's a big campaign in the U.S. to, you know, holler back and the, all these anti, anti-catcalling anti campaigns, which I think are great because it is annoying, you know, when you're constantly being sexualized and you're trying to think about, you know, I don't know, current events or what you're going to do or in the next anything. hour or yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. You're trying to get on like with your damn your day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it's all, you know, when my Venezuelan host sister came to visit me in the U.S. after the year that I was down there, she came to visit me in Minnesota, and she was horrified by the lack of, of, of interest that she was getting from men. And she was like, what's wrong with people here? How does anybody hook up with each other? I don't understand. This, is, this culture is sick. You know? <laughs> so it's all, you know, there's not, there's not one universal perspective on anything. And it's not, you know, and it's not like every 
woman in Venezuela agrees one way or another either on mm-hmm. on that kind of behavior. Um, but you know that the media, the the Bolivarian socialist revolution, the um, yeah sexism, classism, but also the, just the international perspective of holy crap! I've never heard of Simon Bolivar. Like I don't know anything about South American history, and I mean, granted, I was only sixteen, but still. You know, my mom's a historian. I paid attention in school. I never heard anything about any of those people. Yeah. I wouldn't even know, you know, if I hadn't looked at a map, I wouldn't even know that part of the world existed, mm-hmm. really. Right. You know, especially in, in, in very white Minnesota and in even in the Philly public schools, the, you know, it's very black and white or just mostly black. Right. And so you're not, you're not getting a whole lot of internationalism. And, right. and that definitely altered my world and made me think, wow, I wonder what else is going on out there that, that I don't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, my, my mom's boyfriend when I was growing up had, a, had given us a shortwave radio. So I used to listen. That's another thing. When so it's I was pre-internet. In, when I was inside, when I wasn't playing in the bushes outside, I was, I was often inside, yeah, pre-internet, listening to shortwave radio. And, you know, at the time, it was just babble. I didn't know what anybody was saying or even what languages they were. But it was so fascinating to me. It was like tuning into Mars or Jupiter. Like, every time you turned to station, it was like a different universe. I have no experience with that. But whenever I hear people talk about it, I can understand what they're saying. Because it seems like it would be really fascinating to hear this kind of, like, chatter and this like these voices just coming in out of, you know... It's like a Jodie Foster movie where she's, like, listening to the satellites for extra... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean... It was your own little seti. Yeah, I was, I was sure that I was going to discover something that was totally undiscovered, you know, on my little shortwave radio. So that that motivated me a lot to um, want to learn other languages. So I'd always been really interested in languages, and I, um, the family I lived with, lived with in Venezuela didn't speak any English, so I learned Spanish pretty quickly. Just. Mm-hmm had my dictionary on me at all times and would plan out what I was going to say for every conversation and write it down and practice and then, you know, fuck it up and then do, try it again. <laughs> but you adapted, right? I mean, you, yeah. you, you speak Spanish well. And now, now my Spanish is totally fluent. When I, after, after high school, when I moved back to Philly at the age of 18, I uh, became a translator in a public health clinic and... Yeah, yeah did that. That's pretty impressive that you could pick up that much in that time, but I guess the I full was, immersion... Yeah, when you're really social and outgoing, there is mm-hmm. nothing closer to death than not being able to talk right, to people. Right, yeah. So I was highly motivated, and and I think that's why I made such quick progress. Everyone's like, "Oh, you must be so capable with languages, or you must, you know." And I'm like, if you saw my grades in French class, or you talk to my French teacher, she'd be like. <laughs> I don't think so. This girl, mm-mm. Yeah, but, I took French but dump first... you in France, you know. Yeah, 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 and it's a whole, whole nother. And that's the thing. I think a lot of people go through, you know, public, or go through K through 12 education and think, oh, well, I sucked at math, so I must just be bad at math, and I, I can never learn it, or I was really bad in my language class, so or I can't write, I sucked at my English. You know, and that's just not true. If you want something bad enough and you work at it, you, you know, you you're going to make vast improvements over whatever you were doing in that two hours a week in, in class during... Yeah, yeah, conjugating verbs right. to say that you walk down the street or something. Yeah, I never yeah. did well in French class because I didn't care. 
and it had nothing to do with my life. I just had to get through the thing and, you know, learn certain sentences and not sound like a doofus when I spoke aloud. Yeah. Sounded like a doofus. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's the other thing. You can't be, can't be self-conscious about your bad accent either. You just got to have no shame. God, and in, in a South Jersey public high school, it really didn't matter. But yeah, like if I was in France, I can't imagine those snooty bastards, what they would think of my really <laughs> shitty French. When I, you know, I was telling them, I am 15 years old, I would like a banana. <laughs> no, you, you could speak really well in France and they'd still tell you your French was shit. So what you going to do? But I have to say, after I learned Spanish, all of a sudden it's like French just made all the sense in the world and all of these, you know, all of the romance languages that previously made no sense at all became very, very, very easy to understand. And, and now I can read fairly well in most of them and yeah if i was dropped in brazil or france for like six months i i think it'd be fine yeah that, that's uh, impressive that's cool that you can cool. do that uh so i guess we'll talk a little bit about uh sexism in in activism i suppose because mm. um you know something that i wanted to to hit on in here uh so to speak is uh in moving through activist circles, um, do you encounter sexism, and you know how, how do you how do you adapt to that? Uh, how's it play out? You know, because theoretically, these these people would be enlightened to some degree. You right. know, they should be. So, how then do you, do the enlightened ones? Yeah, yeah. I wish I could say. Actually, I have to say, when I when I was in Philly at the age of eighteen and hooking up with some activist i i was pleasantly surprised by by some of the guys that i was hooking up with how how conscious and kind of conscientious they were but also that's because i was 18 so it's like you know in dealing with your average teenage male you're you're not going to be very impressed so anything that's even slightly better than that is phenomenal yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but um so actually i mean i think um you know, I think I think some I think some men are really conscious and are great feminists and and I think um, I sadly think obviously as as women we also pro- propagate our predominantly sexist you know patriarchal culture and and so I think it's really just up to everybody male and female. The burden, though, especially being on males, to be more aware and conscientious of themselves, um, but really on both to to figure out how we're playing into these negative dynamics that really hold us both down. You know, I mean, I think I think obviously it's it's still more uh, more onerous for women, but it's you know it's something that negatively impacts men as well. And I th- I think you know especially as you get older, it's it's really as a as a woman you just get more and more aware and more and more impatient with how sexist our society still is mm-hmm. you know and especially because as a little girl i thought my both my parents were feminists so i thought that had been worked out already yeah, yeah. i was very sure you know my mom was a coal miner um she you know and then she became a professor so i i thought you know, women can, and my dad always said I, you know, could do whatever I wanted, and he didn't, you know, and I don't think that he ever treated me different than my brother, or mm-hmm. had double standards or different expectations, and and so, you know, and I really didn't feel that my family as a whole did either, and so, on a, you know, 
in, in, in growing up, I really felt like that stuff wasn't really a problem. And it wasn't until I was a teenager that I became more aware of, you know, how gender, how gendered still a lot of things are. And now I work as an electrician and I get people, (laughs) I get people saying, who's this, the neighbor, you know, when I'm dressed in work clothes with a tool belt on and I'm like, what neighbors do you, (laughs) I was like, wow, I wish I had neighbors that came over in tool belts and were willing to help me fix all my shit. Yeah, (laughs) me too. (laughs) But that doesn't typically happen that way. Um, But no, I went and, you know, the guy that I work for is awesome and um, I think he treats me the same as he would treat anybody else. Uh, But yeah, there's a lot of people that are like, whoa, what? Electrical? I'm like, that is great. I'm small. I can fit in small places and, you know, fish wires. Other people right. <laughs> other people couldn't fish. And... So what about in, within the activist circles? I mean, do um, you ever find that yeah. you're, do you have to kind of struggle to make your voice heard? Or, or do you find that people, you know, will listen and kind of give you the, the weight, the value of your, your words or your ideas? It's funny. I think it really depends on the group. Because I, I, I definitely have been in groups where it's like the more dominant or older male is, you know, thinks that he can just run the show. Mm-hmm. And I've also been in groups where, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different dynamics at play. And so a lot of it has to do with personality. I, I think I'm good at taking charge and being a leader when that's necessary, but that's not actually my natural inclination. My natural inclination is to kind of do whatever other people don't want to do or what's not getting done and then fill kind of be the fill in for, for gaps. And, and then if there's no one that's willing to step up, I'm more than happy to step up, but I'm not going to be the person like charging to the front all the time, knocking other people out of the way. That's just not my personality. And I think, Typically for, you know, a lot of women, that's not how we're socialized. You know, it's like, let's see how the group's doing. Let's see what everybody wants to do. And um, I, th- I, th- I think it's, it's hard, though, when you're, when you're socially conditioned to be very accommodating and kind of raised to be a peacekeeper. It's very, you know, especially being female, it's, it's very hard to then confront maybe as straight on or aggressively dickheads who really need us just a, maybe a good whack upside the head right. or a very clear talking to. But I do think we've made a ton of progress in, you know, in the last, in the last couple generations. I mean, I just think about my, my grandparents' generation compared to mine, you know, I, I mean, there's still a ton of barriers to, becoming, you know, getting involved in any profession and really rising up in the ranks as quickly and as well paid (laughs) as a man, but, but it's not, it's not unheard of and it's not impossible. And so I think as long as we, you know, we keep doing it, as long as women keep putting themselves in everywhere and really, really calling out people for their sexism, Mm -hmm. I think that's what's hard is like, especially in a small workplace or really in any workplace, but Anytime, I mean, we're not known for workers' rights in this country. And so, you know, for immigrants who maybe are not documented or whose first language is in English, for women, 
for minorities and I mean, you know, racially and also kind of ideologically, ideological minorities in the workplace, anytime you're trying to speak up or defend yourself, you're going to, you're going to run into problems and, and, and where do you turn if you're not in a union or you don't have a really good workplace environment where you know that other people have your back? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's nowhere to go. Then there's nothing like, there's nothing that you can do. So I think, I think organizing, I think, uh, workers' rights and, and unions, forming your own union, if you don't like and it, you know, if you don't think there's an appropriate existing union to represent you, then forming your own union to, mm-hmm. in your workplace to, to have a voice, I think is essential. You right. know, I think even uh, uh, activist groups. I mean, I'm not a part of those circles, but, uh, but I think that they've kind of come a long way in dealing with sexism. Because I know, as a as a young person, when I read accounts of '60s counterculture, say anti-war, uh, where they were very kind of tightly regimented, and the men were were the primary speakers and the ones out on the lines, and they wanted the women to be back there, kind of like preparing food and you know doing things just in right. the back while they were out, you know, kind of being the heroes. And then as it kind of shifted towards the early 70s, there was a movement of the women kind of coming in and pushing them away and saying, you know, we don't need you. You don't need to lead us. Um, we're not here just to be kind of like bald and to cook for you. Uh, and it seems like that kind of spirit has moved forward, you know, like from early 70s to the present where there's a lot more of that, where, you know, they don't have to take over the, the underground newspaper anymore and throw out the whole male staff because there's there's something more of an equality, you know. Yeah, and in the, the anti-fracking movement in Pennsylvania, I have to say, is is really strongly led by women, which is nice. It's refreshing, and I, I'm really, I'm often very grateful for that. I'm like, wow, how nice to be working with, you know, a, a majority female environment or with a, a with a lot of other women organizers. Because even even when dudes are cool, they're still dudes, you know. I mean, even when they're conscious and and aware sometimes you know the energy is just different and so it's it's really nice to be in an like an all women or predominantly women space and uh you know i know a lot of a lot of guys get riled up when they're like hey but you know what about us or and it's like yeah it's not it's not a negative it's not anything particularly against men it's just it's really nice to have an all-female environment sometimes or or you know female dominated environment so that yeah which i i feel like i feel fortunate to have had in some of in some of the groups that i've worked with mm-hmm. um and it changes you know i mean that's the that's the cool thing about activist groups they they change people come and go and you know the vibe of of it will will change and alter with time as well so why do you think that the uh the anti-fracking movement has been so uh, heavily female-led more so than some other issues? That's a good question. Um, I think some of it has to do with impacted, impacted families and, um, you know, don't fuck with women's babies right, <laughs> or their right. children. But the act they, of violation, they, you know? Yeah, the, the act of violation. I mean, earth. there's definitely ecofeminism and there, there's, it's hard not to draw parallels. Um, and then, you know, there's that real, that real threat to your, your family and, and your livelihood and your health. But also women, I mean, we're more likely to get breast cancer. We're more likely to get all, all kinds of cancers. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I think if you care at all about your health or, or about the planet, you have to be involved. The other thing that I kind of think is also a factor, and I don't have any you know, empirical evidence to back this up, but I, I do think that when you are paid three-fourths of what a man is paid, there's it's not a coincidence really that a lot of women are are willing to take nonprofit jobs or, or, or lower paying jobs. One, because um, you know, it's more meaningful work and I th- I think a lot of women care about not that men don't, but I think it's more socially acceptable to, you know, do something good even if it's not making as much money, whereas there's still a lot of societal pressure on men to be providers and I mean we haven't gotten out of this very old old world old school um idea about nuclear families and male providers and so there's a lot of pressure on men still to to provide and to make more money and and so I think you know as a woman if you feel more comfortable or if you know you're not going to make that much at this other job anyway right you might as well do this you might as well be doing this really meaningful work that's changing the world Mm -hmm. you know I mean it's a it's not gonna it's never that's never an easy choice i'm not saying oh it's the easy default that's because that's not what it is but but it it i feel like it has to have something to do with it i don't know it's hard it's hard to say i don't know i I mean there's so much going on in the anti-fracking world that it's it's really hard to stay up with the entire country but it does seem like there's a lot of really strong women leaders in the anti-fracking movement not just in pennsylvania but across the country which is okay um, so we're getting a little little tight on time, but the, one of the things that I wanted to hit on, um, and I, I try to pose this question in like the, the least hokey way, but there are a lot of girls or young women who look for role models that aren't, say, pop stars or models, but, but women who do things that are interesting or provocative or change the world. Um, so by you doing these things, by putting yourself out in public form, speaking, writing, and being an activist, you, in a, in a sense become a role model for young women um, and in, in speaking to them say uh, I'd be curious to know your thoughts of maybe like I hate to say ad- advice for young women because it does sound a little goofy but but that is the essential core of what I want to get at like trying to communicate to young women who are looking to say I want to play an active role in this world but maybe don't know the, the way to do it because perhaps unlike you they didn't grow up in an egalitarian environment they didn't necessarily grow up surrounded by books or ideas or people saying you can do anything that you want to do. So do you have a means or have you given any thought to addressing, you know, these these young women to say this is maybe something that you can do or here's an idea or avoid this or whatever? Wow, I should... It's a heavy question, I know. It's yeah, a... no, it's, it's really wrong that I don't think more about this. I mean, I, I definitely have thought a lot about um, trying to figure out a way to start more training programs for young women in the trades because it... There's just so few, and, mm-hmm. and we don't we don't have that many good programs in Philly. Um, but I think I think in activism in general, I think just good advice for life is um, is really having some really tight girlfriends and 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 having s- s- keeping close company with women that you really admire and respect mm-hmm. for whatever reasons you have. Right. Um, but I feel very, very fortunate to have, um, I have my biological mom, I have, um, my two adopted moms who are friends of my biological mom and who have 
basically adopted me for the last, you know, 15 years or so. Um, and, and then a host of other friends of, of my mom's or, you know, a generation above me or two generations above me. And, um, and I think that, that that is really important and having that support of people who have been through more than you Mm -hmm. and can be there to help you through stuff. But then also just people of the same gender, your age, that you can kind of commiserate with. Because I think once you share experiences with other people, it's really interesting when you're... A lot of other societies have much more gender-segregated activity. Like the women will be hanging out with the women and the men will be hanging out with the men. And it seems more sexist in a lot of ways, but actually I find it really comforting and empowering in, in maybe because I didn't have enough of it or, mm. or something. But when I was in Pakistan and it was just expected that you would hang out with a lot of other women and that the women would kind of stick together and the men would do their thing, I was actually more than happy to, to be spending time. I guess removing that kind of sexual pressure or that, that constant kind of like surveillance and, right. and, and that dynamic, you know, would be fairly yeah, liberating in a sense, you know. It, it really is. And, I, and I, I think really just pursuing your own interests and not getting caught up in whatever the hell, you know, your friends or lovers around you are interested in and really just spending enough time with yourself that you're clear about what drives you and what motivates you, then when you are with other people, it's really about sharing those interests and not just, not just kind of getting sucked into, I don't know. And maybe I'm speaking too much from a personal place and not, well, I'm talking you know, you know, I don't fun. know if this is actually an issue for, for all other people, but all other women, but I think it's, I think it's just good in, advice in general no but especially if especially if people are kind of constantly vying for your attention or trying to usurp your your time and energy I think it's really which I think happens to women more than men because there's always someone who's interested and like interested in you or maybe wants to you know there's a certain peacockery that's right. going on it's like the right. presentation of the feathers and, and right. all of that that you've got to move through I suppose right so I think I think really keeping ahead and keeping an eye for for your interests and and pursuing those I mean there's just yeah there's there's nothing more powerful than a really intelligent person really intelligent woman who knows what she wants and and does does what she wants you know Okay, and I guess in closing up, since this is Loud Fast Philly, I should probably at least like touch like a little tiny bit on punk in the interview. A little, 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 little bit. Um, so uh, we haven't punk really... Punk influences? Yeah. Well, I'll just say like you have some interest or involvement in the scene to some capacity. Yeah, I love... Punk. I mean, I think, I think punk and like the DIY ethos has definitely, definitely influenced me and obviously political punk crass uh lots of right there's these know. are strong women then you know and crass yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um and, and and so i think yeah that 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 continues to influence me and people just you know again it's, it's an example of people just doing what they want regardless of whether it's really socially acceptable and the other thing that we didn't touch on at all in this interview that i think is the most important that should be actually should be my biggest piece of advice to women is stop fucking buying shit like just stop shopping 
that's my most important piece of advice. If you want to elaborate on that, go ahead, or you could just leave it at that. But, uh, but, so. but I think that's, I mean, that's the downfall of a lot of people, not just men, but it's, we're so heavily marketed to as women. And so much of our sense of self, self-worth is supposed to come from the physical and it's supposed to come from how we present ourselves or what we own. And that is just crippling. I mean, not only are we making three-fourths of what a man makes, but then we're supposed to be spending twice as much on um, our bodies and what we're wearing and, you know, our nails and our hair. And, and it's just, it's a trap. It's a death trap. I mean, I've never made that much money, but I've been to 25 different countries because I don't go shopping. Yeah. That's, That's really the truth. Like, Everyone's like, how do you have money to go these places? Actually, my doctor yesterday was like, how have you been to all these places? Because she makes, I'm sure, 10 times as much money as I do yeah, in, and a, has in a year. Yeah, probably 20 times as much debt, you know. Yeah, well, that too. But um, I don't have a ton of debt. Um, don't go to school. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, don't pay for school. Um, but, I, yeah, I think it's, I think, I think shopping is, is in this consumer culture. And that's what I really appreciate about punk is it is really hard to grow up and continue living in the U S and not be a hyper consumer. And I, I really feel like punk culture has helped me, uh, stay grounded and, and aware. Of, you're not addicted uh, to collecting records, which many punks are. So no, and then, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's excusable. That's fine. I mean, uh, that's not the type of consumerism I'm talking about, but I'm like, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, as Americans, we're all just, we all consume so much more of, of everything than anybody else on the face of the planet. Um, and China would argue they have the right to consume as much as we've consumed. And who are we to tell them they can't? But... But there's also a finite amount of shit that they can consume until there's just nothing... Right, the American no... lifestyle is unsustainable. And anyone that is critiquing China for polluting or doing what they're doing to the planet um, has to realize that that model comes from the U.S. and that they're just emulating um, U.S. consumption. And so, you know, if we really want to change things and be a different model for the world, because we export so much culture, I mean, and the culture that we're exporting is all about consumption. And so if we want this world to be a healthier place, and if we want this planet to survive at least as long as we do, <laughs> mm-hmm. then we really need to stop consuming and we need to produce more culture, like punk culture that screams like anti-consumer messages. Hardcore. Gotcha. Well, super. Uh, I appreciate you talking to me. So that wasn't so awful. <laughs> no. That's the... uh, thanks a lot. <laughs> Bye.